Merry Christmas. It's, uh, Christmas is not really Jesus' birthday, so all of you who have made little birthday cakes for Jesus, um, he receives that with thanks. But uh, um, it was never really intended to be the date of Jesus' birth. Rather, it is the feast that celebrates the incarnation of the Son of God, the fact that God actually took on flesh and blood, actually took on a human body and soul and became permanently incarnate for us and for our salvation. And on this feast day of the incarnation of the Son of God, we're going to look at a passage in which the author to Hebrews presents this Jesus, God in the flesh, to us. It's Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 14 to 17 as we look at this miracle of Christmas. This is the word of the Lord in the epistle of the Hebrews. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, he, that is Jesus, also shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Do you realize what specifically the miracle was that we celebrate on Christmas? The miracle is not that Jesus was God, so to speak, though he was. The miracle is that Jesus was also human. The incarnation that God actually united his infinite presence, his infinite nature to human nature in the person of Jesus, weaving together in one man, in one person, the divine and the human, such that our humanity is now permanently in union with the the deity of God, one who, who holds galaxies, hundreds of billions of light years across, moment by moment, that he became human. It's the incarnation. Not that Jesus was God, though he was, but, but that God became human. And one of the earliest of all Christian heresies was a heresy called Docetism. It was a heresy that denied not Jesus' divinity, that was evident, but rather it, dev- it, it denied his humanity. And I'm convinced that we Christians today, a lot of us are practically Docetists. We have no problem accepting that Jesus is God. But do you really, have you really let it sink in that he is fully and truly human? That he shares your humanity? That he has pores on his skin? That he has hairs? That he has eyebrows? That he has toenails? That his toenails continue to grow 2,000 years after the fact in his glorified body? 
Have you really let it sink in what it means that he is a physical, fleshy human being like us and that during his earthly ministry, it was a fallen, deteriorating humanity, liable to death? Indeed, it's John the Apostle who warns us that deceiving spirit is always the one who denies the human nature of Jesus. He says, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God in 1 John 4.2. I want you to chew over this to see if the humanity of the Son of God disturbs you. Because what this means, if the person of the Logos, the person of the second person of the Trinity became the person Jesus, this means that God had body odor for you. I'm not saying that the divine nature, uh, the divine essence of the second person of the Trinity emitted some kind of smell, but rather that the body of the human person to whom he was united is a body like any other. It's, it's, there's a lot of humiliation that comes with being human in this fallen world. It, it means that our bodies take in food, carbohydrates and proteins and fats and long-chain thises and vats, and we, we process that food and that liquid into uh, phlegm and fingernails and earwax and that crusty stuff in the corner of your eye in the morning and urine and blood, earwax and bile and skin cells that die and flake off and litter the earth and all sorts of other things that we are not going to discuss on Christmas morning. The body, though it's a good creation of God, is hardly a noble container for the fullness of deity. All the more so after our expulsion from Eden. And nevertheless, what Christmas tells us is that God united himself to a human person, that Jesus let Mary change his diaper, that God, the Son, went through puberty, that he was susceptible to disease, he was capable of dying, he did die, The Bible says in Matthew 4 that Jesus got hungry when he fasted. He became thirsty too in John 19. His brothers grew up with Jesus and they had trouble accepting him at first as the Messiah because he was such a normal guy just like any other. Uh, he, He grew tired and weary like the rest of us, John 4, 6, and all so that he might resurrect our physical bodies on the last day. God had body odor for you, and not only that, he had emotional problems because it wasn't just a human body that he took on as some kind of, you know, enfleshed God. He took on a human soul as well. He was fully human. Don't think that he was some kind of impersonal force, stoic, or distant, like in some of the old movies when you see Jesus and he's like some kind of zombie. I see the light. No, 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 no. It says he had emotions. He was fully human, more deeply human than any of us have ever been. He could fly into rage, a holy rage, when he saw non-Christians being excluded from the outer courts of the temple, non-Jews. He could could become deeply emotional. He loved people deeply. He entered into relationships. He had close relationships with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. John, the the disciple, probably a teenager, was the one that he loved, implying a companionship between the Son of God and John that was stronger than any of the other disciples had. He loved Martha, the sister of Lazarus, in John chapter 11. 
This is more than just generic love for the human race. Jesus became deeply stirred emotionally. You remember when Lazarus died, as recorded in John chapter 11, it says Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled, even weeping at the sight of his friend's death. He experienced anger. He experienced surprise in Luke 7 and Mark 6. In Gethsemane, Jesus experienced the kind of emotional emotional turmoil that dreads being left alone. He was, he was lonely in Mark 14, 32 to 34. Jesus' humanity was full, normal humanity. God did this. He took it on so that he could redeem us. And the, the most shocking thing is that this was permanent, a permanent change in the unchangeable God, that he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you now if you are a Christian. The incarnation was not just a temporary thing. It's not that Jesus became human, but He is human right now. The eternal Son of God, the eternal Logos, the deity Himself, human in the person of Jesus, even right now. Certainly throughout history, there were times when God appeared to his people as a burning bush or a cloud in the sky or a flame at night. Those were what theologians call theophanies because they were appearances of God, but they were temporary. They were gone in a moment, but not this one. This one was God uniting himself personally to your human nature so that in him you might have a relationship again with your creator. Jesus in the New Testament is referred to as a man who stands before the Father's throne. Acts 17, 2 Timothy 2, refer to the man Jesus in the present tense, a man who ascended to glory and rules the nations with an iron scepter. This is what offends most Muslims about Christianity. Uh, If you talk to a Muslim and you're like, "What, what is it that really offends you about Christianity? It's that they see this as something so humiliating and shameful that a glorious, holy, and righteous God, infinite in His glory, infinite in His power, one who rules the cosmos, it would be a humiliating, shameful, degrading, lowly thing for Him to enter in and join Himself to human nature. And they are right. And the Bible says that that is exactly what the Father had His Son do. God became flesh. Hebrews here says, He shared in their humanity like them in every way, fully human in every way. The miracle of Christmas is that the God of the universe became human. Why would he do this? He did this for his people. He did this for you. Among Orthodox Christians, those Christians of the East, those ancient churches, they talk a lot about the cross of Christ, but they talk every bit as much about the incarnation of Christ Because they understand that the incarnation is every bit as much saving of you as is the cross. Because in the incarnation, God who became man actually joined the divine nature and the human nature together such that, that, you know, St. Peter can say that we become partakers of the divine nature in Christ. Paul can say that you Christians died and your lives are now hidden with Christ in God. If you want to draw the diagram, the Venn diagram, there's God and man overlapping in Jesus and there's you and Jesus overlapping. So in Jesus, you are united to the Father. You are united to the very power that fueled the cosmos. 
Father who loves you deeply. And your prayers are answered because there is a human being right now who is causing the Father to receive this service of worship as glorifying and honoring to Him, even though everything we do is tainted by our own failings, our limitations, and our sin. It is received as righteous and acceptable, the Bible says, because you have a mediator, the man Christ Jesus, God in the flesh, a human being putting in a good word for you, a human being tugging at the father's coattails saying, this one you need to listen to. You need to take care of this one. This is my brother. This is my sister. So you understand the human presence before the throne of God. You won't understand the depth of redemption that you have, the permanent presence of your human nature in the very throne room of God in the person of Jesus. So why would he do this? Why this miracle of incarnation? Why God made flesh? He did it because he loved you. I listened to a conversation with Ard Lewis. Ard Lewis is a professor of theoretical physics at the University of Oxford, where he leads an interdisciplinary research group studying problems on the border between chemistry, physics, and biology. He's also a Christian and a follower of Jesus. And as he was talking, it was amazing to see just his love and, 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 and admiration of the beauty of the world, the, the, the fascination and wonder that he sees in all of God's creation. And he talked about an exam, a, a, a time in when he was working on, I think, postdoc or something like that, some kind of studies. And he and his roommates at the time had tropical fish, you know, the big tank with the fluorescent lights, and it makes them fluoresce, all sorts of fantastic colors. And, and he loved these fish. They were his life. He just delighted in these fish. And yet every time he would walk up to the fish tank in order to feed them, in order to take care of them, in order to love them, every time he'd walk up to the fish tank, the fish would spook and freak out and scatter as far away from him as they could. They'd go back into the corner of the fish tank and cower like in utter terror at this one who loved them completely and so wanted them to understand his love. He would feed them. He would change their water. He would care for them. He would, he would call the vet if there was something funny going on. He loved them and he cared for them. And yet it dawned on him that the only way that he would ever be able to truly convince these fish that he loved them is if somehow in the mystery and magic of the cosmos he could become a fish and dive into the fish tank to be a fish with them and to show the fish how much he loved them. That's what the eternal God, holy and glorious and powerful and good, did in that manger, in the womb of Mary, when he took on flesh and dove into the fish tank and became a fish like us, became a human being, so that we would not cower in fear but know his love. Perhaps the most acclaimed musician alive today is, is Bono, uh, St. Boniface of Dublin, if you prefer. Uh, and Bono describes an experience after returning home from a long tour in which he returned to Dublin and attended a Christmas Eve service. And at some point during that Christmas Eve worship service, Bono says he grasped the truth at the heart of the Christmas story, that in, in Jesus, God became a human being. 
And Bono describes how tears were streaming down his face. These are his words. He says, the idea that God, if there is a force of love and logic in the universe, that it would seek to explain itself is amazing enough. That it would seek to explain itself by becoming a child born in poverty and straw. A child. I just thought, wow, just the poetry of it. I saw the genius of picking a particular point in time and deciding to turn on this. Love needs to find a form. Intimacy needs to be whispered. Love has to become an action or something concrete. It would have had to happen. There must be an incarnation, Bono says. Love must be made flesh. And that was the love that became human, the love that lived and died and rose and ascended and is living with a beating heart right now at the Father's sake You, a God who dove into the fish tank so that we could know his love. A God driven by by his love to come seeking and looking for his children. It takes an intellectual humility to accept that. To say, I don't have all the answers and I can't always prove everything that I believe. But I accept that love is real. That love took on form. And I can accept that love. Not because I am worthy, but because that love has gone to such great lengths to seek me and to find me. I am never the master of that love, but long to be mastered by that love. To be changed by the love of a God, of a father who dives into the fish tank to go seeking his children. In the film, The Water Diviner, Russell Crowe portrays an Australian farmer named Joshua Connor who allows all three of his sons to enlist with the Anzac troops during World War I. And all three of them are together at the Battle of Gallipoli. And all three of them go missing in action. And all three of them are presumed to be dead. The movie begins four years after their disappearance. Connor's wife couldn't handle their loss. She drowned herself early in the movie. Connor buried her and promised at her graveside to bring her boys home and bury them next to their mama. As a water diviner, that's someone who finds hidden sources of water in a dry or arid climate. Connor possesses an innate ability to sense the insensible, and he applies this sixth sense to the problem of locating his lost sons. After a three-month journey, Connor arrives in Istanbul, And from there, he bribes a fishing boat captain to transport him to Gallipoli. Against the wishes of the British Army, who were there trying to find and properly bury all of their war dead, possessing nothing but his eldest son's diary, and a knowledge of what day his sons disappeared, Connor is convinced that he can find them. A Turkish officer who was present at the battle, Major Isan, is the only one who takes Connor seriously. The British officer in charge has already planned for a supply ship to take Connor back to Istanbul, and he's content to see him rot on the beach in the meantime. And a most telling scene unfolds. Major Isan asks the British officer why they won't help Connor search for his lost sons. And the officer quips, that he can't go about helping every father who won't stay put and let the authorities handle the matter. And Major Isan replies, Yes, sir, but he is the only father who came looking.
That's the incarnation. That the everlasting Father, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the wonderful Counselor, would come looking for those who were His, giving up everything in the cosmos to have the one thing He wanted most, which was you, His child, whom He loves. It's the miracle of Christmas, the incarnation, that God became fully, truly, and permanently human in the person of Jesus for us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we give you thanks for the incarnation of the Son of God, for your love for us, your compassion. They fail not. And so we consecrate now to you the elements on this table, this bread and this cup, that you would preach the good news to us, that we might see the Son of God, his flesh, and his blood for our sake. Amen.